listening to Foundry Church's weekly podcast, where our singular focus is to help people know, follow, and share Jesus. Our hope is that today's message would help you to encounter the living Christ in a new and transformative way. Wow, isn't that good? Our team killed that, I love it. Um, You know, it is true, Easter means that God turns graves into gardens. It means, it's not just a a holiday that we celebrate, but we are Easter people as followers of Jesus, and he invites us into a victorious life because he brings people back to life. The physical resurrection of Jesus means that the the spiritual death is no longer our fate, that we are reunited with God who created us. And since he walked out of the grave in the power of the spirit that he gives us, we walk out of the graves in our own lives. And this is what this series is going to invite you to, to consider the shame, the doubt, the fears, the, the regrets over the past All of those things that keep you trapped, that keep you from living the life that God wants you to live, that God invites you to live. Um, And and even the promise that when this life is over, that we will be resurrected with Christ again, that there's internal life that he promises us. Uh, Claude Eli was... um, Born in 1922 in the western parts in the hills of Virginia, he was a 12-year-old boy who uh, got tuberculosis, and his family surrounded him and began praying over him. And as they sought the Lord and asked for God to heal him, spontaneously, Claude sat up in the bed, and he sang the song that you just heard. He sang those words that no grave would hold him down. He grew up to be a preacher uh, throughout Kentucky, and he would sing the song, and he would preach the gospel, and people would come to Christ. And uh, Johnny Cash covered this song, 2003, just before his death, actually. And, And there's video of Cash singing this song, and you can see, you know, his journey was long and and twists and turns along the way. We could see towards the end of his life that he had this peace because he had trusted in Jesus, and that he knew that, that, that death was close at hand. And he sings it, you can see it, you can almost see it because of the resurrection, the grave's not gonna hold him down. And so the resurrection changes things for you and for me. When we looked at the garden last week, if you were with us, and if you're here, again, if this is your second day with us, we're, we're glad that you're back today. Uh, we're gonna pick up on this theme of the garden. The gardens, uh, the first garden in the Garden of Eden when God creates humanity in his own image and, and he created us to, ha- to have a relationship with him, to walk with him, to know him. And he created a, a world out of chaos that was um, that was perfect and whole and right and relationships that, that flourished and life was flourishing, but there's one who tempts and, and, and who traps and who, who twists the truth of God and, and he convinces us and we find ourselves as sons of Adam and daughters of Eve doing the same thing, turning our backs on God and yet we have a God who won't give up on us. God in his rescue mission Um, One of the main pivots of the Old Testament, the Old Testament is all about God's redemptive work to bring, uh, and it all leads us to Jesus, the one who would redeem us. But God won't give up, he's merciful and he comes. And one of the key pivots in the story, one of the key points in the story where things, where God does something remarkable starts in Genesis 12. 
And today I want us to dive into the story uh, of a a man that maybe you've heard of. Even if you didn't grow up in church, maybe you've heard of Abraham and Sarah. But their story tells us so much about what it is to live free of the bondage and the the trappings and and the caves, especially of doubt. You see, Abraham's life, Abraham's life is a story of tests, of trials, of, of, of questions, of doubts, and ultimately, God's faithfulness. That's the ultimate story of Abraham's life, is God's faithfulness. And so let's look at these three major tests that Abraham faced and how he and Sarah showed faith and how God showed faithfulness through them. Genesis 12 is where I'm gonna start. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you kind of, we're gonna journey through about 10 chapters of Genesis, uh, but we're gonna hit some high points of the story. The first one is Genesis 12, one through three. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Abraham was very wealthy. He was, a, he was, he was prosperous. He was comfortable. And, and, and all that his father had acquired was now his. But God says, leave and go. And he says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Okay, this is the promise of God to bless the whole world and he chooses one man. He chooses one man, one family, one nation that will eventually lead to the Messiah who will come so that the blessing of God can extend to all the earth. Abram's prosperous, though. He's comfortable. And twice, actually, in his life, God calls him to move, to take up, and to leave, to leave everything that was comfortable, everything that he knew his identity was in Ur and then later in Haran. In both places, God asks him to leave. Now, you might imagine yourself, because he's this Bible hero and because we talk about his faith and all of these things, you might imagine that, that Abraham and Sarah didn't have their doubts. But I don't think that's true. In the story, we see it. You know, you, you, you kind of imagine Abraham being this person of faith where, you know, God asked me to go, and so I'm just gonna go, and there's no crisis of faith at all. If that's, your, if that's what you imagine of Abraham, I want, you to, I want to ask you to just check that at the door and imagine him to be more like you and me because I think he was a lot, like more, a lot more like you and me. I think he had his doubts. I think Sarah had her doubts. And I don't think that this is what the Bible's teaching us is that we, that we don't have doubts. I think what the Bible is teaching us is that God is faithful, he is loving, and he is always gracious with us and merciful to us, and that he even meets us in our doubts. But that he always calls us and will always provide for us when he calls us to do something. And, and he won't always, though, spell out all the details. Because when he calls Sarah and Abraham to go, he says what? He says, go to the land I will show you. He doesn't tell him where he's going before he goes. And that first step of faith, oftentimes, you won't have a blueprint to what God is calling you to do. But, but God calls Abraham and Sarah out of comfort and out of the known into an adventure. Into an adventure that was still riddled with doubts, with questions, but ultimately an adventure that was all about them being their part in God's rescue mission. And so the second test comes along the way. Chapter 15, we read, Genesis 15, five and six. God took him outside and said, look up in the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he says, so shall your offspring be. 
Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, he believed the Lord even in spite of all of the things that didn't add up, particularly how old Abraham and Sarah were. But if you follow the story, there are many places. In fact, I would say, like if we raise Abraham up as the, as the ideal and Sarah up as the ideal, um, you know, in all cases, we're not, that's not necessarily what the Bible's teaching us. The Bible's not looking at Abraham always and saying, do it just this way. The Bible is inviting us to see ourselves in the story. And what, what Abraham and Sarah do is, yes, they are faithful. Yes, they believe God. But listen, they have their doubts and, and they don't always get it right. And I would say part of the second test, they, they don't pass. Because if you read through the story, the story, um, all of the details aren't adding up in their, in their mind. Everything's not coming together. Abraham and Sarah are getting older and older. And I think almost like, if you think about it, Abraham wants to save God the embarrassment <laughs> because he sees that the promise is not being fulfilled and he and Sarah kind of take things into their own hands and they, they um, use their, their servant and, and they have, uh, Abraham has a son with Hagar. She gives birth to Ishmael, but God isn't pleased, and this is not gone the way that God intended it, and he continues to promise that Abraham will have a, a child through Sarah. They didn't pass this test, and, but at, at long last, in their old age, God fulfills his promise because God is always faithful, and so he comes to them, and, and he tells them that even in their old age, they're going to have this child, that his promises, that it's now come true and that his promise is now fulfilled and they were they were way beyond childbearing years. In fact, Isaac, their son, they named their son Isaac. Isaac means laughter because they both laughed at how ridiculous it was at their age to have a child. Now, I don't know, like I just imagine like how slow did Abraham drive the donkey on the way home from the hospital? You remember like when you had your first child? Can you remember how how protective you were? Can you remember what it was like? Imagine after all of these years, there have been other children, but this was the promised one. And after all of these years, what would you do to protect that? And the third test comes in a very unexpected way. Maybe, maybe it was a lot like that other night when God promised. It says that Abraham, you know, I don't know, Abraham, maybe he went outside the tents. Isaac had quit fussing and had gone to bed finally and he goes outside the tents and he looks up into the stars. Now remember, this is not Houston sky. The closest you might be able to get would be if you go out to Big Bend maybe get away from all the light pollution, and you see the millions of stars in the heavens. And God has promised him, this, these will be your descendants. And he's doubted, and he's questioned, and they've taken matters into their own hands, and they've tried to make it work themselves, but God continues to say, no, I'm gonna do it my way. Trust me, I will be faithful. And God has finally shows his faithfulness. God finally gives them the son that they had longed for, this promised son. And he takes him and he says to him, and I wonder if it was in the same tone, he looks up at those stars and God says this, put yourself in his shoes. Take your son, 
your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Now, if you don't cringe when you read that, you are too familiar with the story. You're too familiar with the story to let it impact you in the way that it should as a modern reader. That God would act, would ask, would request for Abraham to sacrifice his child. Again, a lot of times we put ourselves back in ancient world, we, we, use, we, we, we wanna make a direct correlation and we, we ask ourselves, I've, I've had people ask, you know, like, do, would, what would you do if God asked you to sacrifice your child? It's a horrible thought. It should make us cringe. In fact, it should make us question what's really going on here. What is God up to? But Abraham goes. Um, you know, this is, if, if, if modern readers, if we're reading this, it's kind of like, if you think about it, it's kind of like God, it, it's kind of like if you gave your child a puppy for Christmas and then said that you wanted to, them to strangle the puppy. We should react that way. But they load up and they go. The donkey and the wood and the torch is lit and saddlebags are full and they take this three mile hike. Think about it, they had three days. Abraham had three days to think about this. Do you think he got any sleep at all? What was going through his mind? What was going through Isaac's mind the whole time? They get to the bottom of the, the mountain and they leave the servants behind and they go up the mountain and it's just uh, dad and his son, Isaac. And you know, Isaac's like, where's the sacrifice? We have the wood and we have the fire, but where's the sacrifice? Abraham's, I imagine, trying to deflect and he's like, don't worry, God will provide. And then it says that they reached, in chapter 22, verse nine, that they reached the place God had told him about. Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac, laid him on the altar on top of the wood, and then he reached out his hand, took the knife to slay his son. But before Abraham could follow through with it, God intervened. An angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now that I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Now, even though the story ends in a happy way, right? We're relieved. In spite of that, I think we still have some questions about God in the way that he interacts with Abraham here. And I think that that's okay. I think we have to wrestle with it. But I wanna offer you something uh, in terms of context. I wanna offer to you this, that, that in Abraham's day, 4,000 plus years ago, roughly, 
that he was surrounded, that, that Abraham didn't grow up in a nice Christian family, right, in the suburbs. That's not what it looked like for Abraham. He grew up with many, with a plethora of other religions foreign to our concept. Canaanite religion, Canaanite practices, religious practices were some of the most uh, horrible and uh, abhorrent that, that we know. In fact, when we go on our Holy Land trip, we go to a site of a Canaanite city and right in the middle of the city, they found evidence that the center of life was the sacrificial system of sacrifice, of human sacrifice. That it, was, that it was a normal ritual because their idea of God was a God who was angry, who was looking for anything that you did wrong so that they could smite you. And their, their hope or, or their worship was really more about appeasing an angry God. You see, this is a very different God than like if you look at the flood narrative, we look at the flood and we view it through modern lens and we read something different. The ancients read the flood narrative in the Bible and instead of an angry God who was looking for any reason to find fault with humanity, to wipe them out, we read of a God who is searching the whole world with his mercy, hoping to find one and looking for one, even one who is righteous, so that he can save the whole world. And so I believe that when God calls Abraham, tells Abraham to do this, it's not the same reaction that we have because it was what he was accustomed to in his day. It wasn't a strange, abhorrent kind of idea the, the, the details still didn't make sense, right? Because he had promised that he would have this child. He would promise that he would, the blessing would come through him. And so there are things that don't add up for Abraham, but he still does what God has asked him to do. And when God stops him, what God is saying is, this is not who I am. This is not who I am. I'm not like all the other gods, in fact, that's how the story goes on, right? The story goes on that Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place, listen, the Lord will provide. This is the key to the whole story. The Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. God will provide. This, friends, listen, this is the real plot twist. Because in the ancients' day, for God to actually come and provide the sacrifice was, was scandalous. It was ridiculous. We look at the beginning part of the story and think that's ridiculous. They look at the end of the story and they think that's ridiculous. And so we have to transpose this into our own reality, into our own context. And what does this story teach us? This story teaches us first and foremost about God's faithfulness and about trusting in God. That there is a deep trust in God that comes only when you know that God is for you, that God is not against you, that God is not an angry God who's waiting for you to mess up. 
But, but Abraham is, is, is on, he's on the precipice of, he's, in, he's at this encounter with God that's gonna reveal God's nature in a way that humanity had never known, of a God who, who is a provider. He's revealing, he's pulling back, he's showing the God of creation again as a good God. He faces this test and he passes the test. And it's not a sick test like we think it is. God met Abraham in what he knew. And yes, he tests his faith. And yes, Abraham's life can be defined as a series of tests. But tests are different than, than traps. Sometimes God will allow you to go through tests. The enemy wants to trap you and wants to trip you up and wants you to fail. God wants you, God wants you to allow the tests that come your way that we will all face because we all face difficulty in life. Will you allow the test to reveal your trust in God, and will you grow in your faith, grow in your trust when the tests come? This is the story of God and his faithfulness. It's the story of Abraham and his trust in God in spite of his doubts, even with his doubts that he's willing to trust, even when it doesn't make sense. It's also a story of a foreshadowing. It is, a, it is a, foresho a foreshadowing. Abraham not only passed a test, but he is a foreshadowing of one who would come who would pass the ultimate test. See, a thousand years later, Solomon would build the temple, this same mountain. It would be the place where the Israelites would worship, where they would offer sacrifices. And then another 2,000 years later, Jesus would be crucified in this very site. This very mountain, Mount Moriah, where God asked Abraham to offer a sacrifice, but God intervened and said, no, I will become the sacrifice. Jesus carries a wooden beam on his back up a hill, and in the same place, he becomes the sacrifice for us. This is a scandalous, reckless love of God that comes after a humanity who turned their back on him again and again and again. Romans 8, 32 would say, Paul says, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him, graciously give us all things. I don't know what tomb you're facing today. Maybe it's a tomb of doubt. Maybe it's a tomb that God invites you to trust him to walk you out of. Maybe it's regret, maybe it's fear. But the tombs of doubt in our life provide us an opportunity to trust in God even more. Thomas was one of the disciples who doubted. You know, he kind of gets a bad rap, doesn't he, Thomas? I mean, his name, Doubting Thomas, right? It's what we call him. We remember him for his doubt. But we forget what Jesus does maybe in that story, in that encounter. Maybe the encounter is not so much about Thomas's doubt as it is about Jesus and his response to doubt. So Jesus is raised from the dead. The disciples are talking about this. Thomas hasn't witnessed it with his own eyes. 
says, until I see, I, I mean, can this really be? What would your response be, really? I mean, really, a dead guy back to life? Are you sure you weren't hallucinating? And he says, until I can see the hands and touch the scars. What does Jesus say? Does Jesus say, well, enough with you then. If you need empirical evidence, then forget you. <laughs> Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus comes to Thomas. And I can only imagine what that encounter must have been like when he looked in his eyes and Jesus looked in Thomas's eyes and he took his hand and very graciously, he doesn't condemn him, he very graciously takes his hand and says, here, see, touch, feel the scars. If you're in doubt today, I wanna just encourage you, where do you turn with your doubt? That's the biggest question. Will you turn to God? Will you invite him to show himself to you? Or will you stay trapped in a prison of doubt? Will you open yourself to the possibility that he still encounters us today? That a test of your faith and a circumstance that you're walking through might be actually something that reveals your level of trust and invites you to grow and to deepen that trust in the one who is faithful, in the one who has provided, who has made a way where there is no way. The song that we sing, um, more recently Molly Skaggs covered this song, it's the version that we sang, and, and I love what she says about it, and I wanna close with this. She says it's an anthem for anyone who is ready to follow Jesus and walk out of the graves in their daily life to shake off the victim mentality and stand up in the truth of who they really are as a child of God. There was a battle, a war between death and life, and there on a tree, the Lamb of God, crucified. He rose up like a lion. He's come to set the captives free. That's you and me, friends. Declare it today, ain't no grave gonna hold this body down. Let's pray. Lord, in your spirit, there is freedom. And I pray today for all the Thomases Through your spirit, you'd help us to walk out of doubt. Lord, you meet us when the, when the circumstances just don't add up. When we've tried to take matters into our own hands or manipulate or control the circumstances, all along you're inviting us to trust you more. And so Lord, I pray right now that whatever binds us, holds us, that you'd bring freedom. That you'd help us to turn to you with our doubts, our fears, 
our hesitations, our questions, knowing that you're big enough for them. Friends, I wanna invite you to do that right now in the quietness of your heart, right where you are. Just, I don't know what you're walking through or what you're in or where you're stuck or maybe it's a loved one. Maybe it's a health concern. Maybe it's a financial crisis. Maybe it's a major decision. God is close to us, friends. Ask him for wisdom, ask him for courage. Ask him to heal your heart. Return to him. Lord, we turn to you. For you are good and you are faithful always, every day. It's in your name we pray. so grateful that you joined us today and invite you to visit us online at foundrychurch.org for more information on how you can worship, serve, and get connected with us.